Our Father, we thank you for your word, for its message that relates not just to some hope or confidence for eternity, but to what's going on in our society today. That we might understand it's fitting in to that which you have revealed in the past would occur, and the instructions then that we find in your word for our daily life are so pertinent and so applicational today. Give us the wisdom, and may we give you honor and glory in our daily walk. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 9 verse 1 introduces our study today. After these things, and the statement after these things goes back to what we have been studying concerning the seven years of tribulation and uh, the battle of Armageddon, actually the Armageddon campaign and all that was taking place in that, we have reviewed as we have uh, worked our way through the book of Revelation and certainly not an uh, intensive study, but an overview to kind of understand uh, uh, where God is headed with it and therefore... Of course, the purpose always would be in knowing where God is headed is that we might know what we're to do and where we are to fit into it. And so he said, after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the God, unto the Lord our God. This is the introduction of the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation, and there are two very dramatic prophetic scenes that are presented in the 19th chapter of this book of Revelation. A hallelujah course in heaven is focused upon in the first part of the chapter, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And then there is a scene of judgment and victory on the earth in chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. So we're going to look at these two parts of the drama as it has been revealed to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the pen of the Apostle John as he wrote these things. Part one, then, of this chapter is the introduction of four hallelujahs in heaven. There are four hallelujahs that introduce what is going on in heaven as things are drawing to a climax here upon the earth. The word in the King James text is alleluia. It's actually a misspelling of the initial with the aspirate having been omitted from it And it means, our literal translation would be hallelujah, and it means praise the Lord. Frequently, this word is found in the Old Testament, but this is the only time that it is found in the New Testament. Now, remember as we're looking at it that we're dealing with the completion of the stewardship the administrative responsibility of the age of Israel. 
And so the terminology is not that which we find in the New Testament as it relates to the establishment of the church, but rather it is, it goes back to the vocabulary and the terminology that was used uh, uh, in the Old Testament during the age of Israel. He says, after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Christ is in this scene about to complete the redemption that he started back on the mount called Calvary. It was on the old rugged cross that he actually provided for us positionally redemption. But we still live in a body that is decaying. We still live in a world uh, that is uh, disrupted by uh, Satan and all of his agenda. And so for the fulfillment of all of our redemption, though the price has been paid, that redemption even of our bodies is yet to be experienced. And there are four things that are identified here in this verse that are to be fulfilled while uh, we are getting the new, new body, the resurrection body, and then a new heaven and a new earth that we might be with Him. Salvation and glory and honor and power. That hallelujah connotes then the great salvation that we have and the glory and the honor and the power that is a result of that. Now we could park right here and spend some lengthy time in uh, uh, examining what is meant by these phrases. But our purpose in this series as we are uh, walking through the book of Revelation and then we'll be closing it off uh, before too long now as there are 22 chapters in Revelation. We're in the 19th today. Uh, but uh, we could we could spend months on the doctrine of salvation, on the glory that is ours as a result of Christ's redemption of us, of the honor that we are going to have as a result of His redeeming us from our iniquity and making us holy and pure and without blame before God, and of the power, the dunamis power, the dynamite power that is available in our lives. Salvation, glory, honor, and power brings forth the cry from those in heaven as the tribulation is winding down and the angels rejoice as well, pronouncing salvation and glory and honor and power. But let me hasten on to walk through the skeletal outline at least of this uh, 19th chapter because it's so relevant to the things that are uh, being uh, viewed by us today and the things that are being experienced and certainly then 
will come to a climax at the end of the seven-year tribulational period, which begins, you recall, with the rapture of the church occurring to initiate that. In verses 2 and 3, the hallelujah of righteous judgment is identified. He said, for, uh, they said, for true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore who did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and he hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. God's judgments certainly are true. The word righteous means that which conforms to the specifications of the plan. And as it relates to God, it's that which identifies the characteristics that form the attributes of who he is and what his agenda is. This hallelujah celebrates then the true and the righteous judgment upon uh, uh, Satan and the the focus here is upon the great whore. Remember, that's the false church during the period of the seven-year tribulation when that's so universal and straddles so many different uh, doctrinal beliefs. Uh, the word doctrine probably would be, uh, during that period of time, uh, a word that would not be allowed to be spoken, for they're not looking for instruction at that time concerning the ways of God. They're looking at the prophet of man, as we see as we examine the ecumenical church of that particular day. It's a time of great judgment then upon evil, and as that finally is realized, it's certainly a cause for rejoicing. You may remember back in the sixth chapter of Revelation, there was seen under the throne the souls of those who are martyred during the tribulation, during that seven-year period, and they're crying out, How long, O Lord, how long before we have vengeance upon them? How long? Well, that vengeance will finally come as the seventh year concludes the battle of armageddon is interrupted as we're going to see then in the second half of this chapter by the lord jesus christ himself so there are four hallelujahs uh, as they recognize salvation glory honor and power and there is the Hallelujah then of redemption, and there is secondly then, as we have seen, the hallelujah of judgment. Judgment has finally come as this chapter becomes fulfilled. In verse 4 and 5 of the 19th chapter of Revelation, we have the hallelujah of praise. And the four and twenty elders... And the four beasts, we've seen that the word beast should be translated living creatures, fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his, ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. So a hallelujah of redemption, a hallelujah of judgment, results then in a hallelujah of praise. 
hallelujah of praise focuses upon the greatness of God. And that God is to be praised by all creatures, both small and great. And this is a mention here in the text again of the 24 elders worshiping. Remember in our earlier study, well, let me remind you anyway, the 24 elders represent the entire church age believers. All of the believers from the church age, from the day of Pentecost in 30 A.D., to the day of the rapture of the church, they form that group that is represented by 24 elders. And so we're speaking of the regenerated church that has been raptured, joining in, and the four living creatures, remember, are those angelic beings that are before the throne of God, day and night, and they represent the four aspects of the ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ uh, that are represented in the four Gospels. Matthew represents Jesus as King of Kings. Mark represents Jesus as Servant of Man, the Servant King. Luke presents the humanity of Jesus, that in every way he was human. And then John presents the deity of Jesus that though he were all these things, he remained deity and God. And so those four living creatures that are before the throne of God, they represent the total gospel concept of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which was fulfilled then in the personal life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the last mention of the 24 elders then that represent the church age believers and uh, they simply, we, instead of they, will add our voices to this hallelujah course. So a hallelujah of redemption, a hallelujah of righteous judgment finally coming, a hallelujah of praise, and then the fourth course is the hallelujah of his kingdom. Verse 6 says, And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Focusing upon one of the attributes that form the character of God, His omnipotence, which is full or complete authority. And while he has allowed the devil to have his day to present to us the option and opportunity of choice, that comes to an end. And the omnipotent, omniscient power of God uh, is amplified as he brings his power into focus. His sovereignty is provided by His omnipotent power, His full and complete power. And that power now will reign, not upon just the heavens, but the earth itself and eternity. So the hour will finally arrive that the kingdom, which positionally we are members of and citizens of, will actually become a reality 
as the millennial kingdom first is established. And so this course of hallelujah is sung. Now, verse 7 and 8 introduce to us then again the relationship of the church and uh, of our standing with God and being the bride of Christ. Verse 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So this is the marriage of the church to the Lamb that occurs following the rapture of the church in heaven. But now there is the manifestation of that as we are about to return with Christ to the earth. The Greek tense is what we call an aorist active indicative which indicates the marriage is come. That means it has already taken place and we have seen that then back in our uh, study following the rapture of the church and that dramatic stage that is in heaven about what's going to be occurring during these seven years. But now the focus is being shifted here as we see what is taking place on the earth. In the Old Testament, the symbolism of marriage was used frequently as a reference to the relationship between God and the nation Israel. Isaiah wrote of it this way, For the Lord hath called thee as a woman, speaking to the nation Israel, forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. For this is the waters of Noah unto me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no longer go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord, that hath mercy on thee. So Isaiah talks about a restoration of relationship between God and Israel. Jeremiah speaks of it in chapter 3, verse 14. Turn, O black sliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. The prophet Ezekiel speaks about this marriage relationship between God and Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, the time was the time of love, and I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. Hosea's life magnified 
of this as God told him to go take a wife of whoredom and uh, illustrated through the physical marriage of Hosea to a prostitute the great nature of God and the provision of God. Hosea wrote this, And I will betroth thee, speaking of God to Israel, I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. But there came a time when God divorced Israel. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8 says, And I saw when all the causes were by backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce, and yet her treacherous sister Judah feared to not, but went and played the harlot also. So what is the relationship between God and Israel in eternity if the church is to be the bride of Christ? Well, we'll spend a little more time on that subject when we get to chapter 21. Uh, but we need to notice that the wife hath made herself ready. Let us be glad and rejoice and give, give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. So salvation is a work of God's amazing grace and requires no work on the part of the believer, a simple acceptance of what God has provided. So what does it mean here, and his wife hath made herself ready? Well, the answer to that question is in the Greek text, the word righteousness is in the plural. We investigated this a while back in our earlier study. It's not talking about God's righteousness, which is credited to your account at the moment of salvation, so we are holy and pure before Him. But it's talking about the experiential righteousness that we, the conform, the word righteousness, remember, means conforming to the specifications of the blueprint, of the plan. And so as we conform to the specifications of God's plan, we are dressed with the garments of uh, uh, the bride of Christ. We saw in our earlier study, we're making our own wedding garments. And uh, it it's our conformity to God's plan for our lives. And as that's revealed to us in his word, that lay up for us gold, silver, and precious stone, versus the wood, hay, and the stubble that is produced when we are not walking in fellowship with Him. The marriage supper is dealt with at the second advent of Christ as well. And that's revealed to us in the Scripture when He saith unto me, Right blessed are they that are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. I would remind you that John the Baptist called himself a friend of the bride, uh, a friend of the bridegroom, not the bride. John the Baptist was part of 
Israel's administration. And so we, we have a separation that occurs here. And the writer says, I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, see that thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we have to understand the distinction between the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage takes place following the rapture of the church in heaven right after we go through the judgment seat of Christ. The marriage supper does not occur until we come back with Christ to the earth and uh, uh, the establishment of his millennial kingdom. That is going to be the time of the marriage supper. Uh, The parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, the two most uh, mistranslated or misinterpreted uh, chapters, I believe, in all the New Testament uh, are there uh, because there is an attempt to try to make those parables fit the church. They're not addressed to the church. They're addressed to Israel, and uh, the church will be the bride. Israel will be the friend of the bridegroom when we return with Christ. Matthew chapter 25 talks about the ten virgins. It said, "Shall Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened to ten virgins which took their lamps and they went forth to meet the bridegroom. They're not going to meet the bridegroom to be married. They're going to meet the bridegroom to rejoice with him and celebrate in the marriage supper. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps but took no oil with them. But the wives took all took oil in their vessels as well as in their lamps. And while the bridegroom carried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go you out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. And the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there not be enough for us and you, But go ye rather to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage supper, and the door was shut. After came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said, answered unto them, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not the day nor the hour, wherein the Son of Man cometh. And then in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14, we have a parable of the wedding supper itself. Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. And he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the marriage, and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fatlings are killed, and all things already come unto the marriage. And that's marriage supper. But they made light of it, and they went their way, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, 
and slew them. But when the king thereof uh, heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and he destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they that were bidden were not come. Again, every time we have the reference to wedding in this passage, it's marriage supper. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you find, bid them to the marriage supper. So those servants went out unto the highways and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man that had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So we have then in this first part of the 19th chapter of Revelation, the hallelujah courses, the four hallelujah courses, and the reason for the celebration in heaven. But now there is a change of gears at verse 11 in Revelation 19, where we enter the second part of the study. And having looked at the scene of the hallelujah course in heaven, then we need to see what's going to take place here on the earth. Verse 11, And I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And his eyes were a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. So John sees the heaven opened. Now, it was opened before in order for Christ to go and meet the church in the air. But now it's opened for Christ and the church and the angels to come back down to the earth. Notice he comes on a white horse. There was a white horse back in Revelation chapter 6 where we were talking about the beginning of the tribulational situation, but that was not Christ, that was an imposter, that was an antichrist. But now Christ rides a white horse. The white horse, historically, has been a symbol of the victory or the conqueror as he makes his grand entry upon return from war. Christ is going to be riding a white horse. He is the conqueror. The one in chapter 6 that was the Antichrist was attempting to pass himself off as such. But now the genuine comes. Christ is described here as the faithful and the true. The faithful and true witness is a term that was used back concerning the Laodicean church in chapter 3, verse 14. But here, he's coming to make war 
and that war is against unrighteousness and against evil, and so he is coming in righteousness. Of course, for centuries, scoffers have denied that Christ will make a return. In Second Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter wrote this, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And his name is called the Word of God. John introduces then this deity back in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verse 1, that says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And a little further down in that first chapter of the Gospel of John, in verse 14 he said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the reference to the Word of God, his name is called the Word of God, is emphasized here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and without Him was not anything made that was made, is going to then be manifest in a visible form, now not as the servant king who came as the Lamb of God to die on the cross, but now as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, to establish His kingdom. In Psalm chapter 33, verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. This time he brings with him his armies. Look at verse 14. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. The word armies is plural. And it refers to a fighting force or perhaps an occupational force. And some see this then as the church and the Old Testament saints, perhaps even their, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> are angels that form these armies. Christ told his disciples that the angels would return with him back in Matthew twenty-five thirty-one, when the Son of Man shall come in glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. So we know the angels are coming with him. Jude tells us <clears throat> that Enoch prophesied that about the Lord's return and bringing with him the saints. In Jude verse 14 and 15, Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh 
with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Paul also talks about this issue when in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 7, he writes, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all of them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. We do note that this army is clothed in fine linen, white and clean. In our previous study, we've seen that white linen is used to symbolize righteousness. Back when I was a kid, I had a white Arabian horse. I was 13 years old. I actually won a blue ribbon riding her in the California Rodeo Parade. So it looks like I'm going to get another white horse as we come, but you'll have one too, as we come back with Christ and his armies to bring forth a physical redemption from the curse upon the earth. In verse 15 and 16, we find the establishment of his authority says, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The sword that comes out of his mouth was spoken of in Revelation chapter 1 as we began this uh, investigation in Revelation. Verse 16 said he had in his right hand seven stars, and we saw that the seven stars then related uh, to uh, the seven churches. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. So we have a fulfillment of that description occurring here as he returns back to the earth. Isaiah wrote in 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 4, but the righteousness, the righteous shall judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall smite the earth with a rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips and he shall slay the wicked. The writer of Hebrews wrote in chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow, 
and is a discerner, literally a critic, of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The sword that comes out of his mouth is the word of God. The weapon that will destroy this earth, though the, the unbelievers at the second advent is the word of God. It is the word of God that created the heavens and the earth. It is the word of God that brings judgment upon a world that has gone astray. John sees on the thigh of Christ as he straddles the white horse, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's an expression that identifies his absolute authority. It's the official title, if you will, of our Lord, and he will establish himself as just that when he returns. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, he said, Therefore a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and return. And he called his ten servants and delivered unto them ten pounds, and he said, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him. And they sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass, when he returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded those servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how each man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, have then authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said unto him, Be thou over five cities. And then he came to another, saying, Lord, here is the pound which I have kept laid up in a napkin, because I feared, because you're you art an austere man, and you take up where you laid not down, and you reap where you did not sow. And he said unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knowest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money unto the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury, or interest, if you will. And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it unto him that hath ten pounds. And they said, Well, Lord, he already has ten pounds. Jesus said, For I say unto you, that every one that hath to him shall be given, and from him that hath not even that that he hath shall be taken away. But those enemies, which would not that I would reign over them, bring them hither, and slay them before me. In Isaiah chapter 9, that prophet wrote, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This event's also a fulfillment then of Psalm chapter 
2, as well as Psalm chapter 24. Psalm chapter 2 reads this way. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be ye instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are they, all that have put their trust in Him. We are seeing then this event being the fulfillment of this psalm at the end of the tribulation. And Psalm 24 also notes which is a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. When you see that word Selah in the book of Psalms or in Proverbs, it means pause and think about it. Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Think about it. And then in Revelation 19, verses 17 through 21, we have the documentation of his avenging himself. John said, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great day, that they may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. 
And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which with which he had deceived them, they had received that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image, and these were both cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant of them were slain with the sword that by him, of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all of the fowls were filled with their flesh. There was a lot of excitement in the prophetic world back in about 1980. It was reported in that year that the scavenger birds, the vultures that are scavengers, had suddenly, for some unexplained reason, in Israel, started laying three eggs instead of one. And so the speculation among the prophets were, ah, you see, getting the vultures ready for this feast. But alas, that generation is about gone, and he has yet to fulfill. But this victory is anticipated, and that's why he calls the vultures to dinner that they may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men. You're going to need, they're going to be the cleanup crew when Christ comes back and the beast and the false prophet are thrown in the lake, excuse me, in the lake of fire and all unbelievers are slain. They'll leave quite a bit of carnage to clean up. Ezekiel prophesied as well concerning this event in Ezekiel chapter 39, beginning at verse 17. And thou son of man, thus saith the Lord God, speak unto every feathered fowl and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come, gather yourselves on every side to my sacrifice that I do sacrifice for you, a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel that you may eat flesh and drink blood. The Lord's got a interesting sense of humor. You shall eat the flesh of mighty of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, of goats, of bullocks, all of them fatlings of Bashan, and ye shall eat fat till ye be full, and drink blood till ye be drunken of my sacrifice which I have offered to you that you may be filled at my table with horses and chariots and mighty men with all the men of war, saith the Lord God. Special invitation to the scavenger vultures of that time. Jesus also spoke in Matthew twenty four twenty eight, For wheresoever the carcass is, there shall be the eagles gathered together. The futile attempt of the beast and of the kings of the earth is amplified in verses 19 through 21 of Revelation. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that set upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, finally, and with the false prophet, finally, the one, the one that had wrought miracles 
and that had deceived the people and led them into taking the mark of the beast. At that point, they're cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Now remember, the lake of fire and brimstone was prepared for the devil and his angels before the foundation of the earth. It is not yet inhabited. Lo, these many years of the history of humanity upon the earth, that lake of fire and brimstone has yet to receive its first victim. Because Satan appeals his case, declaring the character of God is unjust when he sentences Lucifer to that lake of fire and brimstone. Well, the church is settling that conflict. We call it the angelic conflict. The church is settling. And for every rebellious angel, there will be a corresponding church age believer. And when that number is completed, these things will be fulfilled. So if you've got math skills, and you can figure out, first of all, how many angels there were in heaven, and divide that by a third, and find out then how many fallen angels there are. And then some way or other you could discover how many true believers have been, individuals have been born again throughout this church age, beginning at Pentecost, under the rapture, then you could tell when Christ was going to come back. So no man knows the time of the day. The Father knows that and controls that. But there is a payday coming. And finally, finally, now Satan's not cast in at that point. The beast, the dictator of the revival Roman Empire, is cast in. The false prophet out of Israel is cast in. Uh, could be kind of lonely un- for that thousand year period because Satan is, ba- is imprisoned in the bottomless pit during this thousand year reign we're going to look at and is not released out of that until the end of the thousand years. And then his final attempt is defeated. It's at that point Satan is thrown into the lake, lake of fire and brimstone. But we're going to have a role in that with the fallen angels when we return with Christ. Remember back in Revelation chapter 13 verse 4, the question was asked, who can make war with this beast? Referring to the dictator of the revived Roman Empire, seemed that no one could make war. Well, Christ will. And while we come with him riding white horses, uh, uh, we are not going to do any fighting, it appears. He destroys them with the sword, the word coming out of his mouth at that point. The Hallelujah Course, to me, almost resembles a pep rally. (laughs) As they are there in heaven, rejoicing with the four hallelujahs that now the time has come and victory and vengeance is going to be visited upon the earth. The seven-year tribulation has been a time of judgment, but now Christ is going to come and stop it all. 
He's going to remove the curse from the earth. Well, we haven't gotten there yet, but we're headed that direction. We as believers have been appointed as sojourners. He's given us this information that we might understand what's happening in society today. We've worked our way through much of that as we look at the tribulation and as we look in the New Testament at what was is going to occur uh, as we move toward the rapture of the church and then that seven years following. The church moves from its focus upon God and upon redemption and upon forgiveness and moves to a human resource agency. And the rapture will occur. I would suggest to you, if he doesn't come quickly, he's going to miss a good opportunity. Because the stage certainly seems to be set. But of course, it all begins at salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I got a white horse reserved for me. Not because of what I have done, but because of what he did and I accepted it. There's a whole corral full of white horses that are available and we need to ascertain that we have one that we're going to be riding in that return of Christ to the earth. Recognizing this formula that while we've all sinned, He has provided His righteousness at the expense of Christ that we might have eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its message. We thank You for revealing to us what in the world is going on today by showing us what is going to occur, what you have planned, and what our role in it is. May you have honor and glory in our life this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.